Welcome to Aggravating Circumstances, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Laura Saremi. This is season two, episode one, Stand Your Ground. This podcast contains adult content and is not suitable for all audiences. A man seen shooting and killing a young father will not be charged because of Florida's Stand Your Ground law. I think it's Stand Your Ground, it codified protections in the law. Rather than having to use self-defense as an argument at trial, someone could claim they were standing their ground, they could avoid trial altogether. My first reaction was shock, and then horror, and then I began to cry. Because I watched this white man murder a defenseless black man. not continue to let this epidemic of being able to confront and kill unarmed black people and then say, I was just standing my ground. It was just self-defense. Some police officials have criticized the Stand Your Ground as being misguided and dangerous. They point to the Trayvon Martin shooting and say that the Stand Your Ground law has encouraged vigilantes to profile African-American men and they point to an increase in justifiable homicides to show that standard ground laws have led to problems and unintended consequences. The Castle Doctrine comes from English common law, which said that you could use lethal self-defense in your home, which was your castle. English common law also gave you a duty to retreat, which meant that if you were in danger and you could run away instead of fighting back, you were supposed to run away. However, this was not required in your home, which is where castle doctrine comes from. The stand your ground laws that were passed originally in Florida in 2005 and then in 34 additional states shortly thereafter extended this castle doctrine where you don't have a duty to retreat to any area that you are legally allowed to be in as long as you are not committing a crime. Stand your ground laws have had many unintended consequences. And one thing that we find when we start looking at the information and statistics is a significant racial disparity. If you shoot an African-American, you are significantly less likely to be charged, and more likely to be able to use stand your ground in your defense than if you shoot a white person. The other thing we've noticed is cases like Trayvon Martin and Marquise McLaughlin, where white men shot black men and were only charged after weeks of protests. And then we have cases like Marissa Alexander, who was running for her life from an abusive partner. She got a firearm in her own home and fired a couple warning shots into the ceiling and received a 20-year sentence. If there was ever a case where someone should be able to stand your ground, it was the case of Marissa Alexander. If you've made it this far, I hope you listened to season one of Aggravating Circumstances, which discussed the self-defense case of Destry McKinney. 
I'm going to briefly talk about his case in this episode, as well as Trayvon Martin and the new case that we will be discussing in season two of Aggravating Circumstances. What we find with Stand Your Ground and self-defense cases in general is just like the rest of our criminal justice system, there are significant racial disparities. I'm going to let an expert in this area explain a bit more what I mean by that. There's an article in the Harvard Gazette called The Loaded History of Self-Defense. History lecturer Caroline Light's new book, Stand Your Ground, A History of America's Love Affair with Lethal Self-Defense, addresses the national reverence for the right to self-defense, but selective enforcement of justifiable homicides legal protections. After the killing of 17-year-old Trayvon Martin in 2012, Harvard historian Caroline Light felt compelled to explore the roots of the American right to self-defense, which has helped turn the United States into a country with more guns than people. In her new book, Stand Your Ground, A History of America's Love Affair with Lethal Self-Defense, Light traces the development of the notion of self-defense from English common law to contemporary Stand Your Ground laws. The Harvard Gazette sat down with Light to talk about her book, the rise of armed citizenship, and the idea that the right to self-defense has traditionally been wielded by the most privileged against the most vulnerable. In your book, you trace the history of the American right to self-defense to before the foundation of the United States. Where does this notion come from? I trace the legal theory and ideology of legal self-defense back to English common law principles, which are foundational to what would eventually become the United States legal system. But self-defense had serious limitations in the English context. People in the United States forget that originally English common law doctrine held a duty to retreat, and that meant that you were obligated to retreat in the face of an attack. The one exception was enunciated in a 1604 court case involving an intrusion of agents of the king into a man's private dwelling. These are the origins of the Castle Doctrine, which says that you do not have the duty to retreat when you're in your home because a man's home is his castle. This doctrine originated as an exemption to the duty to retreat. But in the United States, it turned into a very expansive set of notions about who is allowed to fight back lethally against whom. The ideology of lethal self-defense is very selective in the U.S. Even if we claim to be gender-blind and race-blind, When people in the U.S. said, quote, a man's home is his castle, end quote, what they actually meant was a white property-owning man's home is his castle, and he's allowed to fight back. How did the notion of self-defense that emerged in the 17th century as a privilege for white men who owned property, as you argue, evolve over the centuries? When we look back into the roots of self-defense laws in the United States, we also see that they're tethered to colonialism, legalized slavery, and the legal doctrine of coverture, which meant that married women could not own any property because their rights were literally covered by their husbands. All of these different principles of exclusion were embedded in what would become the United States legal system. And as I trace them through time, even as laws started becoming more inclusive, self-defense laws were adjudicated chiefly to protect white men and their property. That took off in the post-Reconstruction era, late in the 19th century, when we see court cases in several states 
where white men are allowed to fight back lethally even when they aren't in their home. We don't see anything like that happening for African Americans because in the wake of the Civil War, black codes and vagrancy laws restricted black freedom and access to full citizenship. And most black codes prohibited African Americans from possessing weapons for self-defense. Similarly, women couldn't defend themselves against violence from their husbands. I argue that lethal self-defense has been legalized for the most privileged, even if rhetorically we celebrate self-defense as something universal to all citizens. What is the turning point at which the duty to retreat from threat becomes what you call a selective right to kill? The pivotal moment coincides with the end of Reconstruction in the 1870s. There are two crucial court cases, one in Ohio and one in Indiana in which the state courts decide not to obligate white men to retreat in the face of danger, even if they're outside their homes. This coincided with the moment the federal government withdrew federal forces from the South, which meant it withdrew protections for newly freed people. This was done in the interest of protecting white property, especially given the end of slavery. This legal shift accompanied an effort by whites to retain a claim to what had been their property to maintain control over formerly enslaved people. The 13th Amendment carried a loophole by which white Southerners could continue enslaving African Americans under the guise of incarceration for criminal behavior. For instance, vagrancy laws could be used to keep African Americans in prison. All of these things are part of a larger constellation in which self-defense laws were mobilized selectively in the interest of white property. How would you describe the legacy of this belief system in today's American society? Lethal self-defense in many ways has become naturalized as a universal civil right. What that means is that many Americans see it as their right to carry a lethal weapon in the interest of self-defense. I tracked the transition from the late 20th century focus on hunting to what we see today, which is an urgent accumulation of firearms for self-defense. On top of that, stand-your-ground laws have spread to over half the states declaring that you can stand your ground against an attack wherever you may be, even outside your home. But as we've seen with cases like Trayvon Martin's, these laws are not adjudicated in a way that entitles everybody to protect themselves from what they perceive to be a reasonable threat. You said that the killing of Trayvon Martin inspired you to write this book. How so? That moment was crucial for many Americans. Trayvon's death and his killer's ability to walk free were an awakening to the prevalence of racial violence in our supposedly colorblind society. And even though many people would say that the Trayvon Martin case had nothing to do with stand-your-ground laws, it still resonates in terms of how the jury was instructed to consider George Zimmerman's guilt or innocence. Stand-your-ground laws provide an exemption from criminal prosecution for people who use lethal self-defense in response to a reasonable threat and that's what the jury acted on. They believed that it was reasonable for Zimmerman to fear for his life when he saw an unarmed black teenager. I think that speaks volumes to the pernicious injustice of stand-your-ground laws. In your book, you call stand-your-ground laws part of the do-it-yourself security citizenship movement. Could you tell us what that means? Do-it-yourself security citizenship is the idea that an individual can and will be heroically prepared to fight in defense of himself and other innocent lives around him. It's a seductive narrative for many people. And gun ownership, this notion that you must be prepared to kill or be killed, is at the center of do-it-yourself security citizenship. Whether you have a gun or not, the core idea is that no one is going to protect you. The government won't protect you and law enforcement won't protect you. So as a good citizen, you need to take your safety and security into your own hands. 
The National Rifle Association plays a powerful role in distributing and naturalizing this knowledge, making it seem like an emblem of patriotism to accumulate and carry weapons. Gun ownership is no longer about hunting or recreation. It's about an urgent necessity to protect yourself from danger and to participate in armed citizenship, which the NRA characterizes as the ideal of American patriotism. Their message is that when you protect yourself, you make everybody safer. I'm not saying that it's wrong to protect yourself, but I'm asking people to be more self-critical about the way in which do-it-yourself security citizenship is based on anxiety and fear about criminal strangers, including the perception of black masculinity as a threat in and of itself. Would you say that the notion of the right to self-defense is part of the DNA of the country? And if so, how do you think it will evolve? Yes, in a way, it's in our DNA, but we have our own particular genetic mutations. As the duty to retreat and the castle doctrine were transported to what would become the United States, they changed due to the influence of our specific economy, our ideal of manifest destiny, the legacy of slavery, and our willful amnesia around the ways in which the violence of slavery has not been left in the past at all. It is in many ways built into our DNA, but does that mean we can't change it? I remain hopeful that we may become more critical about armed citizenship and its impact on public safety. It's going to take all of us to rethink and question do-it-yourself security citizenship as the emblem of patriotism. If you want to hear more, definitely check out Caroline Light's book. And that, again, was from an interview with her that was published in the Harvard Gazette. In the case of Destry McKinney, he was on his own property, in his own driveway, being run over by a car. He shot once into the car in self-defense. He then tried to save the woman that was driving the car. He drove her to the hospital at 100 miles an hour. It was a life and death situation. He feared for his life. He was on his own property. And even without Stand Your Ground, Castle Doctrine should have applied. It typically applies to your own property, which includes being inside your own vehicle, your house, in your yard. He was not only convicted of murder, he was convicted of capital murder, which included a life without parole sentence. In season one, I gave several other examples where white men in Alabama had done things much more egregiously and killed people inside vehicles and received no jail time. There's a significant racial disparity with whether you're more likely to receive murder charges versus manslaughter versus nothing in Alabama, depending on what color you are. I hope if you haven't listened to season one that you go back and listen to Destry's case, because it certainly applies. His capital murder charge and conviction cannot even remotely be considered justice. His case included hidden evidence, destroyed evidence, significant misconduct, and so many twists and turns. You should definitely check it out. Now I'd like to discuss the 2012 killing of Trayvon Martin, an unarmed 17-year-old black teenager in Sanford, Florida. Hey, we've had some break-ins in my neighborhood, and there's a real suspicious guy. Uh, it's Retrieve Circle. Um, the best address I can give you is 111 Retrieve Circle. 
this guy looks like he's up to no good or he's on drugs or something. It's raining and he's just walking around looking about. Okay, and this guy, is he white, black, or Hispanic? He looks black. Did you see what he was wearing? Yeah, a dark hoodie, like a gray hoodie, and either jeans or sweatpants and white tennis shoes. He's here now. He was just staring. Oh, he's just walking around the area? at all the houses. Okay. And now he's just staring at me. Yeah, now he's coming towards me. Okay. He's got his hand in his waistband. And he's a black male. Okay. How old would you say he looks? He's got a button on his shirt. Late teens. Late teens, okay. Mm-hmm. Something's wrong with him. Yeah, he's coming to check me out. He's got something in his hands. I don't know what his deal is. Okay, just let me know if he does anything, okay? Yeah, we got him on the way. Just let me know if this guy does anything else. Okay. These assholes, they always get away. If you don't know what happened to Trayvon Martin that night, George Zimmerman followed him, chased him, confronted him, had an altercation with him, and then shot and killed him. George Zimmerman was not arrested for weeks. The only reason that charges were ever filed was because there were nationwide protests. The trial was an abysmal display of trying not to win, and George was acquitted. If you have not watched the documentary Rest in Power, the Trayvon Martin story, you should definitely check it out. It has all of the details and the trial and can tell you everything that happened. The same special prosecutor who did not want to arrest George Zimmerman and only did after intense public pressure was the same person who locked away Marissa Alexander, the woman who I mentioned earlier, who fired a couple of bullets into a ceiling. She didn't shoot anyone, she didn't kill anyone, she didn't hurt anyone, and she got a 20-year sentence for firing a couple warning shots against an abusive partner in her own home. So when that prosecutor was the one who didn't even want to arrest George Zimmerman, it's not really a big shock that they didn't try very hard to win the case. And if these cases were one-offs, and it happened once but never again, and it wasn't that it happened over and over again, we could make some small argument that maybe it's not about race. But look at what happened to Ahmaud Arbery. He's in Georgia. He's jogging through a neighborhood. He is literally chased, pursued, and killed by three men in two vehicles, and there's no charges. They just called it self-defense. There were no charges until... The media got a hold of it and made it public. And then the video of the killing, one of the killers filmed it. The video was leaked. All of a sudden, everyone said, hey, why aren't these guys arrested? They hunted this man down and killed him. Three white men, including a retired police officer and his son, hunted down a young black man who was jogging, wearing shorts and jogging clothes in the neighborhood. If three black men in two trucks had hunted down a white jogger and killed them, how long do you think it would have been before those three men were arrested? If you haven't been to the 
Peace and Justice Memorial, the lynching memorial in Montgomery, Alabama. You should definitely visit the memorial and the museum. It is an eye-opening experience. And while people are getting away with murder, the opposite is true when people of color defend themselves. Because if you're white and you kill a black man, it was justified because you feared for your life. But if you're a black person and you feared for your life, that doesn't apply to you. As was the case with Marissa Alexander Destry McKinney and our season two case of Elisha Baxter. Imagine for a minute that a man and his wife have pulled in to a restaurant. When they pull in and park, there's a group of people standing at the edge of the parking lot by the road under a tree who call to them and beckon them over. There's several people standing there, one of whom the man knows because he'd had some kind of altercation with him a few weeks prior. So the man and his wife walk over to the group and have a conversation. The man that he'd had the altercation with earlier, the two of them are essentially looking at each other, having a chat. And all of a sudden, the man pulls out a large tactical knife and attacks the husband and stabs him in the chest three times. It's so fast, he doesn't even know he's been stabbed until his wife says, you've been stabbed. He starts to gush blood from his chest like a fountain. He turns to run, and as he turns, the man with the knife stabs him one more time as he's fleeing in the arm. The knife wielder then turns to the wife and says, you're next, and she runs, and he chases her. There's a video. The wife is running down the street. The man with the knife is immediately behind her. They are running fast. They run down one side of the road. She cuts across traffic to try to get away. He dives across traffic with her, chases her across the street and down the other side of the road. The husband, who has been stabbed and is bleeding out of his chest, runs to his car, grabs his legally owned firearm, and runs after the man with the knife and shoots him. Do you think the husband should go to prison for shooting the man with the knife? Were you imagining that this was a white couple and a white man? Were you imagining something else? This is the very definition of self-defense. You've been stabbed in the chest. What if I told you that the time from the stabbing to the shooting was less than 10 seconds? What if I told you there's a video of essentially the entire incident and you can hear the gunshots, but you can't actually see the shooting, but you can see the man with the knife disappearing behind a house? What if I told you that the husband and wife was actually a man and his friend? They were both men. And they were both people of color. When this happened to Elisha Baxter, he wasn't given the benefit of self-defense or stand your ground. He was charged not with manslaughter, with murder. He was so terribly injured that he had to be airlifted to a trauma center by helicopter and spent two weeks in intensive care fighting for his life. He's now fighting for his life in our criminal justice system where he received a second-degree murder conviction and a 32-year sentence. Elisha's case, much like Destry's case in Season 1, he is a first-time offender, 
He had a legally owned firearm. He was viciously attacked with a knife, and then the man with the knife went after his friend who he defended. This was in Florida. This is a stand-your-ground state. But Elijah's a person of color, and we treat them differently. I'd like to introduce you to Elisha Baxter by way of a letter that his sister, Miracle, wrote to the judge prior to his sentencing. Your Honor, my name is Miracle. I am one of the older sisters of Elisha Baxter. The purpose of my letter is to respectfully ask for leniency in the sentencing of my brother. Elisha is a very loving, hardworking, and supportive brother, father, husband, and friend. I remember the days of going to college with him and us buying friends of his lunch because he said they had no money. There were long nights of him studying for tests, and he achieved his medical billing and coding diploma and associate's degree in business. His wife and two daughters leaned on him for financial support. With him having a tax and lawn service business, he was able to provide the support needed for his family. His youngest daughter is seven years old. His oldest is 10. Our family has been through a substantial amount of loss with losing our youngest sister, Sarah, seven years old, in a drowning, our older brother, Richard, in a tragic car accident, our niece, Brielle, two years old, in a drowning, and our grandmother, Annie Thomas, who passed away in October of 2017 due to natural causes. My brother, Elisha, was 12 years old at the time our sister, Sarah, slipped into a canal and couldn't swim. Our younger sister, Grace, jumped in to try to save her, only to start drowning with her. Elisha jumped in to try to save them both, only to start drowning himself. He had to let go of my sisters to run for help. The paramedics were able to save our sister, Grace. However, my sister, Sarah, had drowned by the time they found her at the bottom of the canal. Elisha has held guilt in feeling that he, at 12 years old, should have been able to save them both. My heart grieves for the loss in this case on both sides. I know my brother Elisha is determined to learn from this, and he has started on a positive redirecting of his life. I thank God for the medical staff that saved his life when he was stabbed, and I pray for Elisha's strength through this process. We, as his support system, are helping him achieve this change. Sincerely, Miracle. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Aggravating Circumstances. This was season two, episode one. This is an ongoing story. So if you would like to send me any information, please reach out at circpod at gmail.com. That's C-I-R-C-P-O-D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, we sure would like some five-star reviews. And don't forget to tell your friends to listen as well. There's a lot more to come in this case. Oh my goodness, it's going to be quite a ride. So everyone, fasten your seatbelts, and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.